0: Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. Everyone has been around a young woman at some point in their life who is holding her hand at an odd angle, something like this or this, and she's saying those words very excitingly. I'm engaged. Her hand is in this way because she wants you to see the ring that is now on her finger, the symbol of her engagement and her upcoming marriage. Perhaps you've been that woman at some point, or you can't wait to be that woman. Women seem to remember every detail of that magical night, where they were, where they ate, what they ate, the place of significance where the moment of her life occurred. She remembers the specific words that he managed to utter and her screams of delight Men, all we remember is that she somehow said, yes, that's about the bulk of our memory of that night. Like so many other things, the engagement night is a big production these days. Family members are often involved in an attempt to deceive the would-be fiancé into believing that this is just another date night, nothing important or different. You have to have a video crew now and a photographer. They have to be hiding somewhere to capture all that takes place on that magical night. After all, if you don't post something on social media, I mean, did it really happen? And so you've got to have the evidence. If you're real creative, then the, you hide the ring somehow or put it someplace. You can't just take the ring out of your pocket anymore. That doesn't work. And so you have to be creative in how you present the ring Often others are waiting at another location so that you go there after the uh, announcement or you go there to make the announcement. At the very least, you go to the parents' home to tell them what has occurred. And this, of course, is followed by weeks of that same hand motion, weeks of going like this or this to anyone who somehow has not heard the news. I've said before that I'm glad I don't go to proms or get engaged in this age of creativity because I simply couldn't handle it. I mean, I'm glad I went to proms and got engaged in the days when you simply asked and someone gave an answer. I'm grateful that I don't have to do it now because I don't think I could get a prom date or a fiance. And since I celebrated 28 years of marriage yesterday, I don't need one. And so I'm happy about that. Didn't expect that, but we are midway through our study of the book of Ruth, but frankly this relationship between Ruth and Boaz is is not progressing fast enough, and clearly Naomi feels the same way. They've been back in Bethlehem now for about two months, and Boaz has been nothing but nice and generous to these two widows, but when we finished chapter 2 last week, we said there was still a problem to be resolved. The chapter ends with a statement about Ruth that she lived with Naomi, her mother-in-law. And while we acknowledge that that is what she said in chapter 2 that she was going to do, that is, where you lodge, I will lodge, or that's chapter 1, that statement did not refer primarily to a physical place called the home. The point of that statement was she was committed to her mother-in-law. And the point of that statement in chapter 2, at the conclusion of that chapter, was that Ruth still had no husband. She was still a widow. And as a result, she had no heir. And the same holds true for Naomi. No son to carry on the name of her deceased husband, Elimelech. And that was a huge problem in that culture. We said that the narrators are are giving us some foreshadowing. That is a literary device designed to key us in to what is going to happen in the future. And that future begins to take shape in chapter 3, which of course is our portion for our study today. So last week, we ended with Ruth at Naomi's home. Today, we will end in the same place. Only this time, Naomi, uh, Ruth will be holding out her hand and gladly telling Naomi, I'm engaged. That's what happens in this particular chapter. Now, we're going to read it section by section, so keep your Bibles open as we go through here. We're going to start with the pursuit, verses 1 through 5. Ruth 3, verse 1. Then Naomi, uh, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, shall, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking." But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So we're going to start with the pursuit. As I've said, any relationship is not exact, as I said, this relationship is not exactly making the progress that we would like it to make. Boaz has been nice, and he has been generous, but like a lot of men, he seems to be dragging his feet. So what is a woman to do? What is a woman to do when a man is not acting quickly enough? Well, she plots, and she schemes, and she devises a plan to speed things along, and then more times than not, that plan is executed to perfection. Hey, don't get mad at me. I'm just reading the scripture. It's Naomi that is concocting the plan, but schemes and plots seems a bit harsh and that's why I'm simply calling this the pursuit. This of course is common in any relationship. There is one party that is pursuing another or oftentimes both parties are pursuing one another. Now, in our culture, we tend to think that it is the man who pursues the woman, and that certainly would have been true in the first century as well. So this is a little bit backwards to see Ruth and Naomi being the ones doing the pursuing, but that is what we find here. And there are going to be several reasons why this pursuit is not the norm and is not the model for a young person today. Okay, so get that straight. This is not the model for you to pursue one another. And we'll talk about that more in just a few moments. Naomi reminds us that Boaz is a relative, a kinsman redeemer. However, it is important to understand in his ongoing hased, those are the two key words in this book, Hased that is covenant love or loyalty, and kinsman redeemer It is important to understand that he is showing this covenant love not out of obligation. He might be a near relative, but he is a near relative to Naomi, not to Ruth. So he is under no obligation to marry this Moabite woman. And we need to understand that. Because what he's going to be doing here and what Ruth is going to be doing is out of love for Naomi. Ruth is acting on behalf of Naomi so that she might not only have a husband, but ultimately a son to carry on the name of Naomi's dead husband, Elimelech. So Naomi senses an opportunity and the pursuit is on. Boaz will be on the threshing floor late into the night, winnowing the crop and celebrating. Which means we need to know a little bit more about agriculture in the first century, right? Or in the before the first century. We need to understand what's going on here. The threshing floor was a hard surface so that it could be kept clean and so that the grain could be gathered. A hilltop was preferred, that way it could get the breezes that were necessary in order to separate and uh, separate the grain from the chaff. The grain would be tossed up into the air with some sort of tool And then the the grain would be, uh, the kernels would fall to the ground so that they could be gathered. The chaff would be blown by the wind so that it could be used for uh, burning. And therefore, it would be separated so that you could get the grain from the chaff. John the Baptist uses this as a picture of coming judgment in Matthew chapter 3. He says of Jesus, his winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor. And gather his wheat into the barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, this Old Testament imagery is associated oftentimes as well with sexual immorality. And there are clearly overtones in this story concerning a physical relationship, which we'll talk about more in just a moment. But God says in Hosea chapter 9, Do not rejoice, O Israel, with joy like other people. For you have played the harlot against your God. You have made love for hire on every threshing floor. So that was the background to this imagery. So with the agricultural and the immorality as a background, we return to the threshing floor to see how this pursuit is going to be plotted out. Ruth is told by Naomi to get ready. And some scholars actually believe she is told to put on the attire of a bride. Perhaps she was still wearing morning attire, and she's to take that off and put on the attire of the bride. But it seems like if she dresses as a bride, she would have been noticed on the threshing floor. But at any rate, she is to wait until Boaz has finished his time of celebrating and gone to sleep for the night. Again, there is no hint of problems here because we know that Boaz is a worthy man. But certainly with other individuals, this could have gotten out of hand. But it does mean that Boaz would be in a good mood after the harvest. So the threshing was the end of the harvest, and it was also a time of celebration. And of course, every woman knows who puts a scheme into place that it's best to do so when the man is in a good mood, right? Otherwise, it might backfire. And so she is told to wait until Boaz is in a good mood and he has fallen asleep, and then he, she is to uncover his feet and lie down. That phrase, uncover his feet, is symbolic. It's symbolism here that we will see more fully in just a moment. But in some cases, it is actually a euphemism for uncovering more than the feet. But again, we do not think that is the case here. The whole scene certainly could have led in the wrong direction, if not for the fact that both of these individuals are said to be worthy in character. Now, this is why I say this is not the model for our pursuit today. We instruct our young people not to be alone with one another, at least not very much prior to marriage, because we know the temptations are great. We certainly don't want them lying down together, no matter how much character they possess, because given the right situation and the strong temptation, anyone can fall prey to sin, and that certainly could have happened here This pursuit could have gone off the tracks, but it didn't. And so once his feet are uncovered, Ruth is told to wait. And when Boaz awakes, she is to simply do what he tells her to do. The ball will then be in his court, and Naomi is trusting in his character that he will do the right thing. Again, if there was anything immoral going on here, and scholars have debated this for years, but if there was anything immoral going on here, it would undermine the whole purpose of the book. We said uh, week one that a major purpose of this book was to defend the lineage and the reign of King David. That's why next week we'll see that this book ends with a genealogy of David. And if this was immoral, that whole purpose would fall apart along with the character of Boaz. Now one of the dilemmas we face in life and one of the dilemmas that we see in this narrative, a dilemma that I can't fully answer for you, is when do we wait and when should we act? How do we know when to trust God or when to pursue? And I'm not just confining this to a dating or engagement situation. Do I pursue a new job or a career? Or should I be grateful for the one I have and trust that God is working? Do I wait for the proverbial open door and realize that that's God giving me the opportunity? Do I pursue this ambition of mine or wait on God to bring me an opportunity? I think a lot of us as Christians struggle with this balance of waiting on God or getting ahead of God. Was Naomi right in this pursuit of Boaz? Truth is, we really don't know. The story doesn't tell us about the motives or the emotions of the characters involved. We don't know why necessarily she was doing what she was doing. We have to read between the lines and sometimes guess. Was she lacking in faith or was she stepping out on faith? Again, we struggle with the same questions. And I can only give you a general answer. Obviously, we need to pray and we need to trust that God will direct without looking for signals or signs or even open doors, we need to trust that God will direct us. We need to remember that his hidden providence is at work so that even when we act, he is acting, or even when we wait, he is still acting. The best thing I know to say to you is that when our hearts are right with God, when we desperately want to know the will of God and to follow the will of God, then we can trust that God is going to direct us when our hearts and our lives are anchored in him. So there's the pursuit. Naomi hatches this plot or this plan, this scheme, if you want to call it that, and then we're going to see what happens next. Well, the pursuit leads to the proposal, verse 6, verses 6 through 9. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman was laying at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. Of course, the pursuit leads to the proposal. Every successful pursuit must end in a proposal, that moment when one gets up the courage in spite of the risk of rejection to ask someone else to marry them. And this scene is indeed filled with risk, though we might miss it because for us, it's more of a scene of confusion. That is, we don't understand this. I mean, we don't know why this was taking place as it was. This is a pursuit and a proposal that we've never heard of. But the pursuit is, or the scheme is going along just as planned. No one has detected her presence, including Boaz, until he was startled awake about midnight. Now, why is he startled awake? Because his lower legs are exposed and they are now cold. They are uncovered. Every married individual has had this happen. The covers gradually come off during the night because your spouse has taken them from you. But you don't wake up and say, who is it? You know who it is. Instead, you wake up, angrily jerk the covers back onto your side, hoping to wake up your spouse in the process to get back at them for taking the covers in the first place. Now, I don't do that. I'm not saying I do that. Tracy does that, but I don't do that. But Boaz wasn't expecting anyone to be there. He had gone to sleep alone, and he expected to be alone when he woke up. But he now realizes that is not the case. So his question is a natural one. Who is it that is lying at his feet? In the dark, he has no idea who this could be. And so Ruth identifies herself. And based on Naomi's instructions, that is where she should have stopped. Naomi said simply to identify yourself and then do whatever Boaz says to do. But she goes beyond those initial instructions. And verse 9 is a very important statement. Verse nine, she goes beyond what Naomi told her to do, but it is a very pivotal statement for this particular story. Now, these may not have been words that you heard when someone asked for your hand in marriage, but that is exactly what Ruth is doing. When she says to cover me with your wings, she is asking, this is the proposal, she is asking for him to marry her. The word for wings can also mean garment. So the action was the spreading of the garment over the two of them, symbolically showing their one flesh union. It pictures the protection and security she would now find in Boaz as her redeemer. And that is a key theme of this entire book. Ruth is looking for rest. She is looking for security. And when she says, spread your garment or wings over me, that's what she's asking for. Now we saw this same picture last week from chapter two and verse 12. And in chapter two, that was actually a prayer of Boaz. Boaz is basically praying on behalf of Ruth that she would find this very thing, that she would take refuge in under the wings of God. And now Boaz is given the opportunity to be the very means to the answer of his prayer. Ruth makes her intentions very clear. Now, Naomi's plan or purpose or pursuit might have been somewhat vague, but Ruth is not being vague here. She is being very clear about what she wants. She wants long-term rest, long-term security, not momentary pleasure. Now, again, Boaz is being given the opportunity to be the answer to his own prayer. Have you ever had that opportunity? You've been praying for something? And God gives you the opportunity, the occasion to be the means by which God answers the very prayer that you've been given. I think we should always be willing to be the answer to our own prayers. Now, that's not always the case, of course. There are times when you cannot be the answer. For example, if you're praying for someone that they might find a spouse, you can't be the answer for that prayer. But there are many other times where you're praying for someone for something And you can be the means by which God answers that prayer. For example, if you're praying that someone comes to know uh, Christ by faith, why can't you be the answer? Why can't you be the means by which God answers that prayer? Why are you waiting on someone else to share the gospel with them? Why are you praying that someone else would share the gospel with them when you can be the means by which God answers your prayer? You be the one to go and share the gospel with them. Boaz now has a decision to make. A proposal demands an answer. I mean, we've seen the pursuit, and now we've seen the proposal, and you can't just say to a proposal, well, that's nice of you to ask. There's got to be an answer. So will he redeem both Ruth and Naomi? We know that that's where this story is heading. So whether the scheme was right in the beginning or not, God has been working in the background. Now, don't assume that your schemes are always in the will of God. But this scheme, whether it's right or not, God is working to bring about redemption. So from the pursuit to the proposal, we now come to verses 10 and 11. And you already know this point, the acceptance. I mean, if he doesn't accept, we wouldn't be reading the story. So verses 10 and 11. Ruth 3, verse 10. And he said, "...may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter." You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Boaz is indeed going to solve the problem, and he is going to redeem Ruth. In fact, again, we're not often told the motives and emotions of people in the Bible, but it seems as if Boaz is excited about this possibility. The first kindness Boaz refers to is, of course, the kindness that Ruth showed to Naomi in coming back with her to Bethlehem rather than returning to her family. But now this second kindness is Ruth going after Boaz rather than someone else. This second has said he says, is greater than the first because Boaz, to be frank, is not the ideal candidate for marriage. There are all kinds of obstacles to this particular relationship. Boaz is a wealthy landowner, it seems. We know he's a landowner, but it seems that he's wealthy. And Ruth, at least in this point of her life, is merely a gleaner. Boaz is clearly older than Ruth. We don't know how many years older, but he is clearly older than she is. Ruth could have gone after someone much younger. Again, I remind you that she is under no obligation for this Leverite marriage. She is a Moabite. Naomi is under that obligation, but not Ruth. Ruth is under no obligation to to find the kinsman redeemer for herself or for Naomi. She could marry anybody she wanted to. Of course, the biggest obstacle was that Boaz was an Israelite while Ruth was a Moabite. And you may remember that we said in week one that these two nations were not exactly on friendly terms. The Moabites and the Israelites did not get along. And that stems all the way back from the time when the Israelites were on the way to the promised land and the Moabites failed to give them food and water. In fact, they not only did not give them that, but they actually hired a prophet to curse the Israelites. And then in Numbers chapter 25, there is a story about Moabite women who have led Israelite men into idolatry and immorality, and tens of thousands of them are killed by God in judgment because of this. So Boaz is taking a risk here. By accepting this proposal, he could have become a social outcast. He could have been spurned by the other men of Bethlehem. And since it appears that he is a leading figure in town, this indeed is a big risk. He could have been labeled a traitor or a troubler of Israel. But none of these risks and none of these obstacles are going to stand in his way. And so he reassures Ruth that he will do what she asks. He will accept the proposal. After all, she too is a worthy woman. That's the same word that we found at the beginning of chapter 2. So this same word is applied to both Boaz and Ruth. Ruth is the epitome of the Proverbs 31 woman. And we told you at the very beginning of this series that in some Bibles, the book of Ruth comes after Proverbs to make that connection. That after we read the description of the Proverbs 31 woman, then we have a living example of that in the person of Ruth. So these two are not a perfect match, or in some sense they are, but not because of their social standing, not because of their economic standing. They are a perfect match because of their character and commitment to God, which again begs the question, what do we look for in a spouse? What do we encourage our children and grandchildren to look for as they pursue marriage? Is it the security we want financially? So that the first question we ask is, what does he do for a living? What does she do for a living? Because we wanna make sure that our children and grandchildren marry someone who can provide for them. Is it the admiration that comes with outward beauty? The joy of hearing someone say, well, he's sure married over his head so that we know that our spouse is attractive? I mean, those things have their place, of course. But this, this story shows us the priority. And the priority is a unified commitment to the Lord and living out that faith in life. That is what we ought to be teaching our children and grandchildren to look for as it pertains to a potential spouse. All right, so at this point, like a good Hallmark movie, I've been on those Hallmark movies lately, haven't I? Boaz romantically kisses Ruth for the first time, I might add. And the credits begin to roll. And so last we see of them, they are walking hand in hand down from the threshing floor through the fields of grain. Servants are lining the fields, glowing with their approval. And there is no doubt in our minds that a son is on the way to finish this story and redeem the family name and heritage of Elimelech. Except that sounds too good to be true. And so there is a surprise plot twist here. We need to hit the pause button for just a moment. And in verses 12 and 13, we find that there is a challenger to this whole story. Verse 12, and now it is true, Boaz says, that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you good, let him do it. But if he, will, if, but if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. I mean, we never saw this coming. But there is someone closer to Elimelech who has the right of first refusal. And we know by now that Boaz, as a man of character, is going to follow the law rather than his heart. We used to have a line in wedding ceremonies that went something like this. If anyone knows any reason why this man and woman should not be married, speak now Or forever hold your peace. We don't say that anymore. I suppose we're afraid of some old flame standing up in the midst of a ceremony and disrupting the proceedings. We don't have an old boyfriend here in this story, but we do have a Redeemer who is closer in relation and therefore needs to be informed. And this may explain why Boaz has not been overly active in pursuing Ruth, because he knew there was someone closer and therefore it wasn't his primary place. Although it doesn't explain why Naomi would not have known the same thing. Regardless, Ruth is going to be redeemed, either by Boaz or this unnamed man. All will be taken care of in the morning. And so she remains for the rest of the night, trusting that Boaz will handle the situation come morning light. Well, we've got one more section to consider before we bring this to a close. Boaz has made a promise. But as we know, a promise must be symbolized with something. And so our last point is the ring that he gives Ruth. Let's look at these last verses, 14 through 18. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And then she went into the city and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her saying these six measures of barley he gave to me for he said to me, you must not go back empty handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. So we see in these last verses, the ring. Now, you know, the rule of thumb at least the one the jewelry industry tells us, that you have to spend two months' salary to buy a ring to be engaged, which just means I'm grateful that I got engaged when I was poor and just out of seminary because I didn't have to spend nearly as much as maybe some of you did. Maybe that rule comes from Boaz because he certainly is very generous even though obviously there is no literal ring involved. Again, nothing inappropriate has happened, but neither did Boaz want there to appear that something inappropriate has happened. And so he tells Ruth to lay there quietly until the morning and then leave before everyone gets up, but do not leave empty-handed. So he gives her what he has. It's not a ring, but it is, of course, more grain. Now, some of your translations use the word ephah again. Remember that from her first day of cleaning. She came home that first day with one ephah of grain, and we said that was about uh, equivalent of two weeks' worth of food for her and Naomi. And so some translations add ephah here in this chapter. Uh, Therefore, it would be six ephahs, six times that. But in the original, there is no unit of measure designated, which is why the ESV that I read from simply says six measures. Six ephahs would have been about three months' worth of grain for two women, and it would have been much heavier for her to actually carry. So it's probably a smaller measure here, though still generous. More significant, say some, is the number, that is six. Six in the Scriptures is the number of incompleteness, while seven is the number of completion. God created the earth in six days, and on the seventh day he rested. Is Boaz, through this gift, giving her a promise that the waiting is almost over? The rest that she looks for is just around the corner. And since we've said and will say in the next two weeks that he is a type of Christ, it is certainly possible that the meaning here is not just the physical food that he gives her, but the promise of rest and security that she's been looking for all along. She needs seed to provide for her. And that seed is going to come, not in the grain that is in her garment, but it is going to come ultimately through Christ, as we'll see next week. And notice the last verse again, Boaz will not rest until he gives her rest. It's also interesting that Naomi greets her with the question, how did you fare, my daughter? That's the way the ESV has it. But in the original, it is actually just this, who are you, my daughter? Now, scholars have often been uh, confused by this because we know that Naomi knows who Ruth is. So why would she say, who are you, my daughter? Which is why many translations change it to, to say something like, how did you fare? What did you do? Were you successful? That's the gist of it. But it's also possible to leave the question as is. Who are you, my daughter? Meaning, are you still Ruth or are you now the wife of Boaz? Well, I'm going to leave you hanging until next week. That's the only way to get you to come back, right? You want to hear the rest of the story. But more important than this is, will you find rest in your kinsman redeemer? Or will you pursue temporary moments of pleasure? You see, Ruth and Boaz, either one, could have given in to momentary passion, and this would have been an entirely different story. But both of them saw the bigger picture. And I might add, the more satisfying picture of true rest in God. And so I'm simply asking you, do you see that same story? I've called Ruth a love story, and some might question that and say it's not really a love story because there are obligations here, but I'm sticking by the fact that this is a love story. But not as you might think about it. It is the story of God's love for his people, which includes this Moabite woman. His pursuit of her and his pursuit of us to provide us with rest and security. The Bible is God's love story of his pursuit of us to provide not temporary pleasure, but eternal rest and security. Now you can spurn that pursuit if you want to. You can ignore it or you can deny it. And if that's what you choose, then you can seek to find as much pleasure in this life as you can possibly get. Or you can embrace his chesed, his covenant loyalty toward you, his covenant love, and therefore find rest in your kinsman redeemer. More on that next week. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you that you have pursued us, that you have loved us, that you declare us to be your bride. And that comes with all the promises of rest and security in you. Thank you that you are our kinsman redeemer who purchased us that we might be free. And that we might find rest and satisfaction in you and in you alone. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.